0: hello everyone welcome to the binary episode of the podcast i'm specter with me as z today we have a uh, fairly scary xnu mitigation um posted by apple security blog a bug in SQLite, um a net psd bug and some other stuff scattered in there um first though z will get into the spot the bone solution for the week so z i'll let you get into
1: that and this week's spot the bone was another kind of high level issue um what we've got here is, I wrote this in Go, I've seen this code more in like Java elsewhere too, it can happen pretty much any language, um, it kind of actually depends a little bit on infrastructure too, but what we've got here is this imaginary task handler, handle new task, request comes in, parses out some arguments from it, I'm imagining like a JSON setup, uh, whatever, it checks the callback URL, effectively just making sure that whatever host name you give it, it resolves to a... IP address that they allow. There's a is-allowed IP address that just iterates through all the possible um, IPs. It gets back to that host name, checks that they're all allowed. Um, If they're not, then it just rejects this whole thing, runs a task, and then at the end, actually makes the callback with whatever content. The issue there being that it does this host check, it checks the IP really early on before it actually runs the task, and then at the end, if that DNS entry has expired, if the time to live is fairly short, or if it's shorter than the actual time the task took, we don't really have any indication here that the task will necessarily be very long. But since there's a callback, you can kind of assume it'll have somewhat of a delay. Um, anyway, uh, because of that, it could end up doing a second look look-off when it actually makes the post, uh, where a attacker could basically set up their domain to give a new IP address, one that isn't whitelisted at that segment, so a uh, DNS rebinding issue. Um, I kind of gave it the name, right code, wrong place, because ideally you'd be doing that host lookup uh, right before you make that call so it can't expire, and possibly even passing in the IP and just setting the host specifically, um, or explicitly, sorry. As you make that request, although having, depending on your infrastructure, if you have like a caching resolver in there, it might hold it longer than the task takes, there are other places you could kind of prevent this sort of attack, but Yeah, I thought it was a fun one. Yeah, it's an issue
0: that uh like I was I was saying to you yesterday before we started the show, it's it's not something I would immediately have in mind when looking at it. So um yeah, it's a bit of a different issue than some of the ones we've had in the past. So uh I thought, I thought it was cool in that in that respect.
1: A little bit different, um, definitely out there, definitely some that is found. We've covered it a couple of times on the podcast where it's been found in the wild, usually on the bounty side of things.
0: Yeah. All right. So, uh, I kind of mentioned yesterday that, uh, I'd be shouting out the Hexacon talks today, so we'll, we'll get into that here really quick. Um, but those that don't know, Hexacon was a newer conference. This was actually their first year. Um, it was hosted in, in Paris and, uh, yeah, they have a, a more offensive security uh driven, you know, goal in mind with uh with the talks and, and it's a little bit more binary focused, which is why we covered it today instead of yesterday. Um pretty much all the talks are gonna be like, you know, attacking browser or kernel stuff or or other binary uh type targets. Um a lot of like really um, interesting talks there and a lot of really good speakers. Um, so it's definitely worth checking out. Um, it is a conference I'd like to attend uh, in future years. Uh, it seems seems it went pretty well this year. Um, so yeah, they, ha- they have like the talks, they have the trainings and everything. I uh, wanted to give it a shout out. I actually listened to one of the talks yesterday, which was uh, QWERTY's talk um, and that ties into our first topic actually. So I'll, I'll be referencing some stuff from that. Um, we would like to do some coverage streams on these talks as well. We're not a hundred percent sure if we'll be able to. Um, we just need to do some checking. Um, it might be something similar to what we had to do for Offensive Con, where we we can only do it on YouTube. But we'll have to we'll have to see. Um, and once again, just like the CON talks, we'll let you guys know uh, if and when we'll be doing those uh, through Discord and Twitter. But yeah, um, like I said, some really cool talks here. Some other ones I will be checking out for sure. Um, and I think there's some some cutting edge. Um, good knowledge to have you can get from these talks so yeah it definitely uh,
1: looks like a good set of talks I haven't had the chance to actually go through any of them so I can't comment but uh, given the background given the lineup here of people presenting at it it seems like a solid con and solid videos yeah
0: all right so uh, let's get into our first topic here which is by Apple's security research blog which is not a sentence I ever thought I would say on this show but. Here we are. Apple started a, a research blog, and they have kickstarted it with a post about chaotic uh, type, um, which is something that was talked about by QWERTY in his hexagon talk that I mentioned. Um, and chaotic type is a uh, new mitigation that's came to XNU and in iOS. Um, I think it was introduced in iOS 15. And it essentially boils down to uh, stronger heap sequestering at an allocator level. Um, so, to give a bit of background, Being able to manipulate heap memory and get certain types of objects to occupy certain memory locations has always been a pretty foundational part of memory corruption. Um, For use after free, obviously it's pretty important that you're able to replace some kind of object in memory to do something useful, um, whether that's hijacking a pointer to get read-write or code execution or whatever else. Um, But even outside UAF, you may want to get a target object adjacent to some object you have control over as an attacker to be able to overflow or do some kind of adjacent corruption that way. Um, The goal of this mitigation is to essentially kill strategies that rely on that. Um, If not completely kill them, uh, to at least make them less reliable and less reusable um, to try to kill off exploit techniques. So, top of the blog post talks a bit about memory corruption and the XNU allocator, which for all intents and purposes is basically a slab allocator. Um, So you have slabs or chunks of memory which are of different sizes. Um, And you have, you know, the general purpose zones, and then you also have the uh, special zones for certain types of objects. Um, For example, like commonly used objects like file objects or whatever will typically go in their own zone. Um, And that's partly for security, but partly for performance as well. Um, now, in iOS 14, Apple introduced something called zone sequestering. Um, and the idea there was to prevent special zones from being able to occupy the same virtual address space as generic data allocations. Um, so basically just trying to prevent cross-zone attacks. Um, which makes sense because before, it would be possible to do some kind of peep manipulation to get a zone's backing memory released and get used for something else. Um, so if you like fill up a page with objects, you free them all. Uh, apply some memory pressure to get that page uh, garbage collected, it could be used for a different type of zone that you have more control over and be able to exploit some bug. Um, so the, the idea of the zone sequestering was to make it so that, that the virtual address space for that zone couldn't be reused. Um, iOS 15 took it a step further and introduced chaotic type, um, which basically oh. further isolates the general purpose allocations into zones for different types. Uh, go but ahead, jump Liz, in. Center, yeah. if you want to say something.
1: Yeah, I want to kind of comment on the sequestering. I thought it was interesting how they approach that. So they do mention how they're approaching this whole thing as they want to go through and have zero CPU and zero actual memory hit for this because um obviously Apple stuff they have to scale from fairly low power devices like your Apple Watch all the way up to uh they say the high performance back machines um I think there can be some controversy over that claim, but uh, yeah, they talk about trying to go for that performance. So the way they actually went about implementing this I thought was at least interesting. Basically, they still hold on to the uh, virtual address so whenever the zone gets allocated, it'll hold on to the virtual mapping that it gives it. That address will still be held and it'll just free up the backing chunk and it adds on a little bit of extra memory usage as it needs to track that Um in these non as the tracks basically listed the non populated pages, I, I did think it was interesting they were willing to make that slight give in terms of having basically the extra lisping being tracked in order to hold on to those addresses, almost like they're not freeing any memory. I w- I was very much thinking of um the joke about you know can't have a use after free if you don't free the memory, um yeah. as they're holding back onto all those virtual addresses, but given especially 64-bit processes, so many things are these days, you've got such a huge virtual address space that it's probably not going to be an issue for a while.
0: Yeah. Um, so getting into a bit of the specifics of what Kaolic type does, um, basically there's a few hundred zones that are allocated. I think uh, Cordy's talk mentioned 200. Um, and, and any type can go into one of these zones. Um, and once a zone has a type attached to it, um, that zone's virtual address space is essentially sequestered off, so no other type of zone can reallocate there. Um, only zones of the same type can reuse that memory. Um, so that will kill a lot of UAFs. Um, QWERTY in his talk basically says that this is the death of UAFs on XNU. I don't know if I fully like, agree. I mean, obviously QWERTY's uh, knowledge on XNU is far and away um, not compar- like, mine is not comparable to his. Um, but there might be some situations where it still might be feasible. Um, something I'm thinking of, and we have a topic later on actually that, that touches on this kind of scenario, um, but if you like overlap cred objects or similarly sensitive objects where they're still the same type, but just causing the co- confusion between the different initializations could give you some useful primitive, I think those would still be viable um, with chaotic type. But you know, anything where you're trying to cause a major type confusion where you're able to get control of a pointer or something like that, those kinds of exploits are
1: probably going to die. Um, and, yeah, or, or at
0: least become a lot less reliable to hit.
1: Yeah, I, I, it feels like there's a couple places that at least right now maybe still remain. Um, one being, so as they're doing the KLOC type, the compiler basically decides, it gives everything a signature and then it'll zone them on those signatures. Um, and with that signature, what they do is they effectively define, like, this object has like a, Pointer, and then data, and then whatever else. Um, And it creates, I think they've, yeah, right here, like padding, pointer, data, um, dual, or pack. So pointer also protected by pack. Uh, It tracks them all like that and turns that into the signature based off of what's actually in that to limit how you can actually overlay things. But as they do call out, there are cases where applications will or not applications part of the kernel will put pointers, say instead of a uint type, which looks just like a data or like a, just a standard integer. Um, that's where they introduce an extra annotation you can add in there to actually indicate like no, this is this is a pointer, even though we're calling it an integer. but it does feel like that's a place where things can maybe get misclassified um. Either because a developer forgot to annotate or because the annotation ends up being wrong at some point, they say it's something that it does get used as like pointer or whatever it's kind of room in there feels like for at least like the human error to come back into it um and that's something they call that's going to be insanely limiting um so I still feel like you know saying the death of completely makes sense when it's like there might be some edge cases, but like your generic case it. Generally, seems to do a good job, and they talk a little bit more in the post about how they, how the signature check, how they'll collapse some of the signatures. Um, they use the example here of you know this one two two one 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 signature, or sorry one two two one one as a signature could be collapsed with some that also has like an extra two I forget what what the number stood for, but um, has like that extra field pointing on it. They'll collapse those into the same thing. Maybe there's some that could be done in those areas, also that would need a bit more exploration, but like they are seem to explicitly think about that case where in theory, nothing should be able to access that second one as another type, but given the complexity of applications, I could see some mistakes at least arising in that sort of area
0: yeah, even so, it'll dramatically shift like the attacker meta, um which was their goal, yeah. Um, there was also a, a bit of another weakness with the iOS 15 implementation with variable sized allocations. Um, they talked about that towards the the middle of the post. Um, one of the things they do there is uh, they now only allow variable sized allocations where all elements are of a single type um, or if there's a fixed size header with an array of elements of a single type. Um, they've also isolated arrays of pointers into their own type of zone, um, relying on like the annotations and stuff. So yeah, I mean, Pretty strong. Uh, it's received even. It's gotten even stronger in iOS 16, um, and uh, I mentioned mentioned Qwerty's presentation a few times. I guess I should say the name, uh, which Balika reminded me of in chat. It's called "Life and Death of an iOS Attacker." Um, if you want to check that out. Um, but yeah, like as QWERTY said in this presentation and as Apple points out towards the end of their post, this is going to be a big hit to reliability. Um, QWERTY's presentation mentioned some other work Apple has done on that front too, which I think this blog post might touch on briefly, but it's not the focus of it. Um, but on top of KALIC type, they also employ heavy randomization on the submaps that are used for the zones now when it comes to virtual addresses. Um, so even if you can get like, uh, if you're trying to do like a cross zone attack, Um, it's really hard to get two zones that are useful to you adjacent to each other. Um, you basically have a one in eight chance of getting that to work. So it's still possible, but in the, in the case of an attacker, um, like outside of jailbreaking or whatever, it's, it's not really, uh, ideal. Um, because when you have reliability at one in eight, uh, that's, that's pretty garbage. So yeah, I mean, it's hitting iOS attackers hard. Um, kind of like he said and like Belika mentioned in chat it seems like Apple is targeting uh, the iOS attackers more than like jailbreakers um, because a lot of this stuff it will impact jailbreaking for sure um, but on the reliability aspect you know it doesn't matter as much anymore um, when you get to jailbreaking like there's been some jailbreaks in the past where you've had to panic like a hundred times to exploit it and people are fine with it generally um, you know it's, it's an annoyance at best um, whereas when you're talking about you know productization and stuff it's it's a very different story um apple's also introduced a new mode which i thought was really interesting um i think they call it like a lockdown mode um so basically they have this lockdown mode in place where they can employ some more mitigations and attack service reduction um and they disable things like jit so you know People who aren't going to be targeted can keep that stuff, keep lockdown mode disabled so that they can, you know, get the better performance and whatever, or people who want to jailbreak, obviously, you know, you wouldn't enable lockdown mode, but if you're a more like uh, sensitive target, if you're a high priority target, you can enable lockdown mode. Um, and it makes it, you know, even harder for an attacker to be able to get a foothold uh, and be able to do stuff. So yeah, Apple's been doing a lot. Um, and it's interesting they've started the security blog too. Uh, it seems like they're taking a bit of a change in, in how they've been taking their direction when it comes to security. Um, in the past, they've, you know, they've always been kind of at the at the cutting edge of the mitigation game. Um, but it seems like they're going even harder now on like the attack surface reduction and, and trying to make security at least a little bit more open um, with this blog post. So it would be
1: nice if they opened up indeed. on the security front. I mean, they've always been very I mean, as a company, they've always been very secretive. Even working there, as I understand it, like cross team communication is rough at times. Like, secrets kind of just within the company, too. So, I mean, it's not very nice for researchers to come in and try and do research on it. Opening that up would improve, I think, would help their security, even though they have done a reasonable job at it. Um, would be nice, yeah, though, for yeah, sure. to get more information out from posts like this are great
0: yeah it's a really awesome post um going through the technical details and laying it out in a way that you know people can start to speculate and see if there's ways around this um you know unfortunately for attackers it seems like they've thought of quite a bit <laughs> it, it doesn't really seem like there's any obvious weaknesses at first glance but you know maybe something will come up later on somebody will find a, a, a bypass around it or at least a uh, you know Something that makes it a bit easier to deal with, but um, yeah, it's, it's a strong mitigation. Uh, it's kind of funny because this idea of like the heap sequestering we've seen explored in like Linux, for example, but it is not nearly as punishing in Linux as it is here. Um, it can actually be bypassed fairly easily in Linux, from what I've heard. Um, but in like xnu, because it's got more of like the hardware-backed um, security model um and and in tandem with things like pack and and stuff like that that's going on um it's becoming very you have to carry the weight of a lot of things if you want to attack iOS at this point um you you've got to deal with a lot so yeah i mean uh life as an iOS attacker does seem to be getting a, a lot more difficult so yeah uh and it'll continue to uh to, to get difficult. So um actually there was one thing in chat I wanted to mention as well. Um somebody asked it a bit ago. Uh yeah Objfly asked, I wonder if there are ways to exploit a privileged user land process from a kernel exploit. Um it has been done before. Um it's it's mainly been done on mobile from what I've seen. But yes there are, so I think both in Apple and uh Android case, um in both cases the the IPC is going to be handled through the kernel, obviously, to do, you know, uh, inter communication between services and stuff. Um, there have been uh, vulnerabilities or exploits that have used uh, subtle logic bugs in the IPC to be able to get access to, like, code or services that they shouldn't have been able to access, um, like, permission bypasses and stuff. They have happened. Um, they're not as, like, talked about or, or as popular I guess as yep. the you know more flashy memory corruption type issues but they they are out there that they have been done
1: Yeah I'm not sure I'd say it's necessarily that they're well that they're less talked about just that they're simply less common um like we've covered a couple that have kind of taken at least similar routes to that I think the one that comes to my mind actually isn't quite is still attacking the kernel but device driver response back so not quite the same thing but um I think it's more just going that route has some extra layers of complexity. So, like, the current meta really isn't pushing exploits to do that just yet. I imagine it's not the, the future.
0: Yeah. yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, it's not the path of least resistance.
1: Um, yeah, I think we covered a moment. paper, actually, that was talking about doing that. um, Or doing something like that a while back. We
0: might have, yeah um it 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 rings a bit of a bell but i don't remember what that paper would have been um but yeah i mean those are the kinds of attacks that the the meta will have to shift to as more of these um mitigations come into play when it comes to hitting memory corruption um and things like overlapping uh in the heap um because yeah like type confusion is is really powerful it's it's how the basis of a lot of primitives in uh and exploitation and you know, Apple's coming at it. So yeah. Um, good post overall, a uh, really strong start for their security blog. Um, hopefully we see some more stuff come out of it. Hopefully it's not just, you know, one post and then nothing for months or years one or post something. A year. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully we see more, but, uh, as it is, yeah, that's, that's a pretty good post. And if you want some of the more, some of the other background information that's uh, presented in a more digestible way, cause this post is pretty dense. Um, there is a lot to get through. Um, QWERTY's talk augments this post really well. Um, so yeah, I'll give that another shout. And uh, with that out of the way, I guess we'll move into uh, another kernel kind of topic, which is a NetBSD vulnerability. Um, this one is a ref count issue in the QWERTY functionality. Bug was introduced all the way back in NetBSD uh, 5.0, so back in 2009. Uh, pretty straightforward bug, albeit somewhat hidden by the fact that it was a ref count leak, so it, it would take a good amount of effort to trigger. Um, basically, the core dump function in the kernel would take a reference on the process credentials to ensure it didn't get destroyed while it was using them. Um, but in the case of the error path, it would never actually release the reference. Um, and furthermore, it's pretty easy to trigger a fail path in this function through the VN open call, um, which is used for opening the backing V node to uh, of where to write the core dump to. Um, if you just simply provide a path where your process doesn't have permission to write to, uh, you know it'll it'll follow that error path and leak the ref count. Um, there's no ref count wrappers being used here, it is just like an atomic int. Um, and the ref count is a 32-bit field, so it's not uh, unfeasible to exploit. Um, you can get it wrapped around in a somewhat reasonable amount of time where it's 32-bit and there's no checks on, on wrapping around. Um, Exploitation is a little bit interesting because, um, kind of tying back into the last topic, um, the chaos cred t objects are allocated in their own zone, uh, which is the the object to get a UAF on. Um, they're not in the general purpose zone. Um, but since we're talking about credential objects, you don't really need full control over the data. Um, you just need to get a more privileged credential than yours to overlap with. Um, and you can privilege escalate that way. Um, and this is technically better because it leaves a lot less room for like crashes or other corruption. So your reliability with this kind of technique is a lot better too. So yeah, it's a memory corruption bug, but it's fairly easy to exploit. It's not really affected by like mitigations or anything um, because you're overlapping with the same type. Um, just, you know, different, uh, different permissions attached to it. And yeah, towards the end, they actually give the POC as a one-liner. So, you know, it's always fun to see, but yeah, I mean, not a super complicated bug. Uh, it is net so I guess that can kind of be assumed going into it. Uh, it's not exactly the top of the list for secure operating systems or, or, high mitigation operating systems, but, uh, yeah, I mean, these ref count leak uh, type issues are, are pretty fun. Uh unfortunately a lot of the time they're not exploitable. So the cases where they are exploitable like this one, uh it's cool to see. Uh it's nice to be able to cover uh those types of issues from time to time. So and uh yeah, the blog post is also pretty accessible. So you know, even if you're not super familiar with BSD or, or kernel exploitation, uh it, it breaks it down pretty well uh and, and keeps it nice and succinct. So yeah. Um xcd 80 uh, mentioned it doesn't affect OS X um, OS X so there is like an interesting history between OSS or xnu and uh, BSD there is like shared code uh, core dump is probably not one of them um, for the most part at this point I'm pretty sure xnu and OSX only really have the BSD networking stack um, pretty much everything else will be their own code so yeah it, it it doesn't surprise me at all that this wouldn't really affect uh, like XNU or whatever. Um, especially when it comes to something like core dump, because that's the kind of thing that Apple would customize. So yeah. Um, but yeah, not too much to say on that one, just kind of a fun issue. And uh, yeah, we'll get into our, our next topic, which is a project zero report of a Chrome UAF in uh, account selection bubble view class. Um, this is specifically in create account row when fetching an image. Um, It gets a little deep into the code here, but the problem essentially boils down to this create account row function will call bind once um, and bind an image view to this on account image fetched callback. Um, Problem is that image view might have been destroyed before the callback can complete. Uh, Thus, you know, a UAF is possible. So it's sort of similar to the edge phones we saw last week, where they kind of have these Uh, this lifetime-based issue um, when it comes to things that are happening in the UI. Um, So this vuln is in the the sign-on dialog for account selection. Um, And again, like the edge vulns, it's kind of an odd feature. It's probably not one that's going to be useful for attackers. Um, But, you know, it is still a a fairly trivial UAF um, due to not managing the image view lifetime properly. It is a a vulnerability. Um, But again, kind of falls in that class of uh, Self attack almost. Uh, it's going to be really hard to get a victim to go through the process of triggering this bug on themselves. So, um. yeah,
1: that's kind of the questionable part. Is you know exploiting this? You know, we kind of have that same discussion as last week. You know, maybe, maybe in like a kiosk situation, but otherwise, it feels like you're probably not really exploiting this one. Like for a good purpose, it's more just bug.
0: Yeah. Um, and again, one of those areas is probably not being looked at as much, which is why um, a more trivial li- uh, lifetime issue like this exists there. So,
1: yeah, something yeah, to be aware of. It is also the kind of thing, just callbacks are kind of hard to get right. As soon as you start introducing, I mean, concurrency makes things kind of difficult to uh, wrap your head around at times. In this case, just the fact that passes in that raw pointer into the callback. Then means if something happens between the callback actually being executed and the pointer being used, you have an issue. Um Yeah, I mean it's just it is it feels like a very classic sort of issue to be having, and yet um I guess it's just interesting on the exploitation side. Um yeah, I guess we don't really want to go back into that discussion about how you'd exploit this or those scenarios, but I am curious, though, since it did get a CVE, what they actually rated it.
0: Oh, I didn't notice it was uh, assigned a CVE. Oh, yeah, actually, yeah. okay, yeah, it is so. there on the side. Um, yeah, I'd be curious on that. Um, The other thing I thought I'd mention is it is a little surprising the way this bug exists with just getting the raw image view pointer. Uh, I say that because like C++ uh, and like just the browsers in general uh, tend to have these more like smart uh, automatic tracking type of objects that take advantage of like smart pointers and things like that so that these kinds of issues are harder to have. It is a little interesting that they're just getting like a raw pointer there to the image view. Um, That's a bit of a code smell in and of itself, I guess. But uh, yeah, that jumped out at me a little bit as we were covering it. But yeah, um, using the raw
1: pointer there does jump did jump out. Also, I just didn't want to necessarily make a claim on how you'd avoid that in terms of using the smart objects or smart pointers. Um, I pulled up the CV here and actually got an 8.8. Uh, and we've got access hmm, vector network, cool. control low, privilege require none, uh, UI or user interactions are, which I don't recall exactly what that stands for, um, but that's not none. Um, oh, and then, yeah, CIA is all high, because assuming you exploit it, you do kind of compromise everything, so that's fine. Um, access vector network. Feels like that one, like, is a network or is it more low? Um, because, like, what's the network access on it? Maybe this code is reachable beyond where we think. I'm thinking, just going off the original report here, you know, account selection bubble view. I'm thinking it's that thing you click on the top right and you can, like, choose a Chrome account
0: it is oh. cuz they mention in the the reproduction steps that um you would have to use oh, the yeah. click me when they create the the account dialog uh uh rows so yeah i think maybe this is just one of those cases where cve or the cvss score doesn't really do a good job of conveying the well, impact of it
1: well but then at the same time looking at reproduction he has a repro.html uh I which needs to be file. served which so is there some way that they're being able to see at least that event happens?
0: Uh basically what that HTML file did, if I remember correctly, is it just basically sends a request to get the dialogue opened up. Um it's it's not anything like super special. It's like a five lines of code or something. Uh it's it's not doing anything crazy. Does so. it
1: have to well, so it it prompts a dialogue though. So um If they if you immediately close the dialogue, you're going to have a good chance of getting that uaf so maybe this is more exploitable than i was thinking actually um i wasn't really thinking that he'd be able to trigger that from um just from a website to actually pull this prompt off but that does make it sound like there might be a bit more of a complex or sorry a, a bit more of a practical route i guess yeah, perhaps.
0: Um, I just opened up the file to refresh my memory. Uh, they use the navigator credentials get uh, routine um, and do like an identity uh, request to uh, this fedcm.json file they have set up. So yeah, the, it's basically just invoking the, the request to open the dialog as far as I know. But yeah, I mean, like I said, kind of interesting issue. Questionable exploitability. Maybe it is a little bit more useful than the edge ones, but still, um, you know, it's going to be noisy if nothing else. So
1: yeah, I mean the thing is, if that is reachable, then that does seem like a, you know, reasonable bug there, and I'm kind of hitting on it for not being exploitable. But oh no, seems like we might just be missing something, I guess. Yeah.
0: All right, so uh, we'll get into our last blog post here, which is a uh, vulnerability disclosed by Trail of Bits called Stranger Strings. Uh, I like the title in this one, P- pretty good one. Um, and Z, I'll let you get into this one.
1: Yeah, and this one really caught my eye because it's exploitable in SQLite. You're familiar with SQLite. One, it's used all over the place, used everywhere. Um, And two, they have a pretty decent security process. I mean, they've been on, like, fuzzing and all that for a long time. They've always seemed to have a good process. They even call out um, in one of their pages, like, they have an FAQ about uh, vulnerabilities in SQLite and how, like, yes, you know, some some bugs have existed, but all the past bugs have really required have really not been exploitable, like have required a user be able to provide a, their own database or have full control over a query or something, things that don't happen in practice, uh, but are technically, you know, might happen. Uh, so this one, again, you do have some constraints over how things get passed in, but definitely seems a lot more exploitable. Um, it basically comes down to an integer overflow. Um, effectively what you've got is, uh, first of all, SQLite has its own printf, uh, implementation. And this happens specifically with the Q, both capital lowercase and lowercase w, uh, format specifiers. If you're not familiar with those, that's okay because these are completely unique to SQLite where Q and Q are basically just, um, whatever you give in, it will escape. Um, capital Q will wrap the value in single quotes and lowercase Q is just escaping. So putting a single quote in front of every quote and the W is for, um, double, uh, double quotes. Um, so what you're left with is... Or the vulnerable code, I guess I'll get into that, is basically it tries to calculate a buffer size for the final string. So after it's gone through and applied, like added an extra escape character for all of the things that's escaping, it'll check, um, or it'll basically be adding up, add the sizes, and it'll see is this large enough for it to fit inside of a seventy byte stack buffer? Um, if the value is smaller than that buffer, it'll use a stack buffer, um, and that, as you'd guess. Or, as I've indicated, also um, that addition can overflow. So, you end up with a 32 by f- 32 bit value, not by eight, uh, 32 bits there. Um, if you provided a long enough string, when it's adding the original length plus the new characters that need to add, um, that overflows. You end up with a very small, or actually, you end up with a negative number, sorry, uh, because it's signed. Uh, So you end up with the negative number, which, of course, is smaller than 70. So it uses the stack buffer and then iterates through overflowing the stack buffer onto whatever else is on the stack, um, such as saved return pointer or a canary, whatever, basically overflowing right into it. Uh, So fairly straightforward in that sense, in that basically large buffer overflows. And as long as the overflowed value is under that 70, um, it'll work or it will you or it'll overflow that buffer otherwise it goes to allocate it and it'll treat third two bit value as a uh, as size t which then isn't exploitable um there was one interesting that they call out on this which was a divergent representation so this is going to be a future post from them um, as far as i know it's not out just yet but they ran into the case and looking at how they're actually going to exploit this, where the index that was being used in this buffer in this first part, um, where it's using the index, it's basically going to take the 32-bit EDX register and sign it out to get the index. So it'll actually go negative, and they have a signed uh, assigned index that can be used. And then in second case, so in the same function here, got uh, one up there, same function later on, it goes and uses just the 64-bit value, so it's not going to do that sign extension. Um, and he'll basically just use the uh, positive value, kind of creating like the same access, the same variable um, being represented here as both signed and unsigned effectively, or having a negative and positive version being used in the same place, which is just, Feels like a bit of a unique thing to see, um. And so they call this out as just divergent representations of the same thing. Adds a little bit of spice to the exploitation, I guess. But um, that's something they're going to be talking about in another post. Uh, but I did just want to shout it out there. As for the actual vulnerability here, there are questions about where and when it's going to be exploitable. Effectively, um, if you're compiling with canaries, they haven't proven exploitability in that case. If there are no canaries, then, of course, you over- you get your stack overflow, and you've got that stack-based overwrite. So you've got a control flow hijacked from there. There is at least a case where it can be exploited, um, but they're not sure about the case where you do have a canary. Of course, your overflow. A lot of compilers these days will set up a buffer like that, so that it, uh, you're not going to overflow into like smaller metadata. I'm not sure what other piece of data will exist on the stack, but it'll reorder the stack for that case. So you only really overflow into uh, like the base pointer canary and return address. So you're going to have to deal with the canary in a lot of cases. Maybe there's something on there. I don't know what the stack structure is that you can look at trying to exploit or perhaps some other pointers later on the stack, and you can get control before the canary gets shacked. Um, there are some things you can go there. It sounds like it might be a challenging exploit in that case. They weren't able to come up with a good way of exploiting yet. Also, I should have mentioned this at the start of talking about this, but they were actually inspired to look at this vulnerability after um, another post that they read, which was from... I think it was some uh, early PHP filter VARs. Yeah, well, it's something we yeah. covered back on episode 131. So um, they were inspired by that, which was a PHP issue where it, they had the signed, I believe it was a uh, unsigned value. Yeah, unsigned gets converted to a signed value. Um, they were looking for those issues, and they tried to, they found kind of something that looked like it would be vulnerable here in SQLite, tried it, turned out they got a crash, not just uh, out-of-bounds access they were expecting from it because of the... Uh, basically went down a different route. So I explained the bone here, but did do want to shout that out because I thought it was a neat and fun little exploit back on 131. That was PHP filter var shenanigans for the topic there. But yeah, I mean, on a whole, it's cool to see something in SQLite because so often the bugs are pretty impractical. This just requires a large input being used like a string anywhere in there. So can be accessible as long as it hits that... Uh, the printf, which is used internally in terms of crafting some of the queries, so seems pretty reachable. Uh, yeah. yeah, Nice to see. I'm surprised it hasn't been uh, before, because this has apparently existed since uh, 2000. So, yeah, released October 17th, 2000, and then just patched in July of 2022, so 22 years old. Uh, definitely a interesting bug. It is I could understand why it maybe it wasn't detected super early on being that does depend on that 64 32 bit differential. Um, so if you're on like a 32 bit system, as was more common in 2000, if not 16 bit, um, yeah, might've been missed there, but like they've been doing the fuzzing for a long time. So this seems like one of those cases where perhaps the fuzzing just wasn't doing very large strings like this. Um, and just it never happened to reach this case but yeah a little bit surprising Go ahead. this is
0: something i wanted to talk about actually because they uh they go into this towards the end of the blog post um because as you said like sqlite is very heavily fuzzed um it is like integrated as part of their process um so they were kind of wondering too like okay um you know it's well tested why did this bug get through um part of it i think is because you know it has to have really large strings it's not really an ideal uh, kind of test case for a fuzzer. Um, but the other thing they call out is the fact that this overflow ultimately happens in a loop, right? Um, the, like the iterator can, can keep going and go out of bounds. Um, and they talk about how it's a bit harder for the fuzzer to see that as like an important, like code block, um, basically calling out that like branch coverage instrumentation is not really good enough for this kind of scenario. Um, like you could be covering that loop in your fuzzer, but it's only after it's executed tons of times that an exploitable condition opens up. Um, so this sort of highlights an area where fuzzers are a bit weaker, um, when it comes to these kinds of loops, um, At least and coverage these cases guidance. where you need really large strings. Yeah. Uh, coverage guidance, I guess is a better yeah, way. Of,
1: um, we used to talk about that more on the podcast where it's like, you know, coverage guidance is really good. Like it's been very effective, Uh um, but it's not all, it's not great. We just don't really have a better option that's, like, convenient at this point. Uh, but yeah, I guess this kind of illustrates that aspect, too.
0: Yeah. Something I thought I'd quickly talk about in a chat was, Bleak mentioned, is this another exploit to get you boot time jailbreak on PS4? Um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't looked at SQLite on PS4. I'm assuming it would be uh, that stack canaries would be in play. So probably not really an ideal bug in that respect. Um... To be honest, like I don't want to go too off topic here, but to be honest, I've never really had that much of an like incentive to try to get a boot time uh, jailbreak on something with a console. Um, To me, being able to reboot into a clean state is a feature. (laughs) Like I like to be able to do that, so uh, I've never really been you know on board for that stuff. Maybe you could uh, work this into like a boot time uh, boot time exploit chain, but I feel like uh, stack canaries would would make it so you need another bug and, and that would probably kill it as a vector. You'd probably be better off trying to look for something else. Um, but on, um, you know, I will state that it, it's not an area i particularly looked at. So, you know, I could be wrong there, but uh, I don't think it would be an ideal uh, exploit for that.
1: But yeah, yeah I mean, I mean
0: SQLite is used in a lot of places, so there are definitely some systems where this could be useful.
1: Uh, yeah. I think uh, that really depends. Canaries. As you call it out there, is it being built with canaries or not? Um, That seems to be kind of the big hurdle on this one. Um, Of course, trying to exploit this alone could also be challenging because this is just a stack smash. You're getting that return address. What are you going to write over it? Um, You'd need something else to go with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, you could do like a partial overwrite. Um, So like ASLR and stuff wouldn't be too big of a problem, probably. But yeah, yeah. It would be a bit of a tricky exploit, for sure. uh, Especially in, like, you know, a PS4 or just any, like, boot uh, chain-type exploit. But because of, like, how, you know, useful uh, SQLite is and how much it's used, there are potentially other products that would have it uh, used in the boot chain that could be compromised that way, too, um, that wouldn't be as secure.
1: Yeah. So it's a good call-out. And, yeah, a lot of things kind of uh, end up building... Uh, building SQLite themselves are building from source. I'm not even sure if SQLite provides pre built binaries of the uh, library itself. I mean, they provide some pre built binaries, but I think that's just for tooling. Uh, so, because yeah. of that, you really get a lot of influence from the build methods on how wherever they're getting it from. And it's not really standardized on like everybody's going to be building this with canaries or without.
0: Yeah. All right, so uh, that's pretty much all the topics that we have. We do have one shout-out, uh, which I'll let Z get into, and then we'll wrap up the show.
1: Yeah, I'll give this one shout-out here. I'll be honest, it's reading it from the point of view of trying to understand the vulnerability. I didn't like the post. Um, it's long, it just goes into a ton of what I'd feel like were irrelevant details... But at the same time, it goes into a lot of the details over here's how they tried to find this point. Here's how they tried to find what called it, you know, setting up their breakpoints or watch points for whatever. Um, It goes into a lot of that sort of detail, which could be interesting for somebody who is looking for more of a beginner look at some of this window stuff. Um, So I want to at least shout it out here. It's fairly detailed. Tons of screenshots here over exactly what they're doing and all of that. So you might get somewhere from it. Uh, give it a glance if, if that interests you. But yeah, I also had a hard time uh, just reading it for like a summary. So mixed note on that. But there's a lot of information here in terms of process that might be valuable to someone. Yeah.
0: And that's the uh, Windows RPC for those that are listening. I can't see the screen. Yeah. Um So, yeah, a bit of a long blog post, but it does go into some of the background, and that could be useful to some people. Um, But it's also a little bit too specific um, for us to cover as a full topic, uh, especially considering how long it is. So, um, yeah, we're just doing it as a shout-out. It is there. Um, You know, feel free to check it out if Windows stuff is interesting to you. All right. uh, So, with that out of the way, that's everything that we have for this week. Thank you, everyone who tuned in. You can catch the VOD on Twitch immediately or on other platforms like YouTube tomorrow. We also have previous podcasts up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more links on Anchor. Uh, If you want to join our Discord and follow us on Twitter, links for those are down below or in the chat. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. Um, It's worth noting also that we have a daylight savings time change coming up next week, so we will be adjusting for that. For those of you that don't observe DST. Um, will be an hour later for the winter. So, you know, just keep that in mind. I hate DST. I hate that we have to deal with it, but we do. Maybe one day it'll go away. (laughs) But um, yeah, it is something to take note of for if you're tuning in live to the podcast. Um, And yeah, we'll see you next week.